Hello, and welcome to the Canopy Boulder podcast, where we talk about the intersection of entrepreneurship and investing in the legal cannabis industry. Each week, we'll give you our perspectives on the latest news in the industry, bringing you insightful interviews with entrepreneurs, investors, and the industry pros, and also go deeper on topics like launching a business, building a team, valuation, and pitching investors. Why would we take on such of a challenge? Well, we've helped launch 80 companies into the cannabis industry here at Canopy Boulder and made over 100 individual investments into these companies. So you might say we have the inside line on things. So join us as we take you deeper into legal cannabis and uncover all the nuances of starting up and investing in the cannabis industry. Hi, this is Patrick Ray with Canopy Boulder. Today, I have Matt Fargo of Kurt Fargo on with us today. We're going to talk a bit more about exits, but from the tax and tax planning perspective. You know, tax is critical to making a deal work. Um, it can have a meaningful difference in the money that actually flows into your bank account as an entrepreneur and the money that flows into the government's coffers. So, um, you know, I want to introduce Matt. Matt, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Um, yeah, Matt, tell us a little bit about you and uh, the story of Kurtz Fargo. Sure. So uh, currently I'm the managing partner at Kurtz Fargo. We have about 25 or so CPAs working at the firm here in downtown Boulder. Uh, our client base uh, expands across the country. Um, but our, our firm focuses primarily on dealing with we call the emerging growth space. So primarily companies, I'd say between zero and about $250 million in revenue is, is our sweet spot. Um, and the common thread through our client base is that they're growing quickly and they have a need for a firm that is growing with them through those different stages of their life cycle. Um, you know, when I, when I started Kurtz Fargo, it's been about eight years uh, now since I started it. And, uh, uh, my, my career originally started out uh, at PricewaterhouseCoopers. I was in their, their audit group and primarily working on uh, uh, publicly traded companies. Um, and so I was, uh, I was first in their technology space um, and entertainment space, uh, transitioned into mining uh, and extractive industries. The commonality there was they all raise a lot of money uh, through complex debt and equity instruments. And, and so as once I left uh, uh, PwC and went to another firm called CBiz Mirhoff McKenna, I, I focused somewhat on the same areas, um, got into national training and construction, things like that, uh, but really started to enjoy working with fast growth companies, smaller businesses, uh, and entrepreneurs. And so uh, when 2010 rolled around, and actually we were playing with it a little bit earlier than that, um, the idea of Kurtz Fargo came about, which is we wanted to build a firm that was going to focus exclusively on that space mm -hmm. and try to build the firm in a way that, that addressed those companies' issues uh, and trained our people to address those issues very specifically rather than having it be a part of a larger organization. Cool, cool. And full disclosure to all the listeners, Kurtz Fargo uh, works with Canopy Boulder uh, for our tax issues and, uh, you know, the work uh, their offices down the street it's nice to, uh, to keep it local and have that ability to walk down the street and understand things when things get complicated and they certainly do when we're talking about 
tax and accounting. So um, we were going to talk about exits from a tax standpoint is before the deal, during the deal, and then after the deal. So Matt, why don't you talk a little bit about uh, how entrepreneurs should be thinking about exits before they have they get into the process of doing a deal. Absolutely. And, and I think this, I, I don't know who said it, but you should always start with the end in mind. And I think that's one of the issues that we find with a lot of um, early stage companies uh, with first time founders is they haven't yet made any significant material errors in their uh, formation of a business yet. And so um, everybody's trying to conserve capital as much as possible for the growth of their business. And so there's some corners cut. And so I think there's some key corners that you don't want to cut early on as a, as a, uh, as a company founder that, that will then inform how well you do on an exit in the future, whether that's an acquisition uh, or some other type of transaction. Um, and so, you know, I'd start out from the very beginning, which is the formation uh, of your entity and what the structure of that is. Um, and I think it's really important I think these are, I think the two most important people to bring onto your team right at the beginning is a high quality CPA firm and a high quality attorney um, that specializes in your space uh, and specializes in working with fast growth businesses. Um, and the reason is, is, you know, when you're, when you're, when you're deciding how you should form the company, uh, you know, typically there's, there's three kinds of entities. There's LLCs, S-Corps, and C-Corporations. Most venture-backed companies, if that's, if you're going to go down the institutional venture-backed uh, path, um, you're gonna probably start out as a C corporation. There's a lot of reasons why it might make sense to start out as a pass-through company from the beginning, but I typically tell people, if you're, if you're gonna be starting out as a pass-through company, and it should be an LLC. We, we really try to shy away from S corporations. Um, they create a whole lot of issues on conversion to a C corporation and the, and the tax uh, effect of that. Uh, in the future on the founders. Um, and one example of that is, uh, uh, the old wisdom used to be, be a C, an S corporation if you're gonna be a pass-through, uh, and do a check the box election to become a C corporation uh, when it comes time to raise money from institutional investors. The, the problem with that is, there's, there's a code section called section 1202 or qualified small business stock which is something that all founders should really pay a lot of attention to. What it allows you to do is if you've held the stock that you got on initial issuance from a C corporation that is worth less than $50 million gross asset value, um, when you exit, you can have an exclusion of $10 million from capital gain or 10X your initial investment. So that's really important both for founders and for investors. Um, if you convert from an S corporation to a C corporation, um, and there's some nuances to this, but if you just straight up convert S Corp to C Corp, you, you do not have the ability to use that code section to get exclusion from capital gains on your exit. And so it's really important. We see it happen all the time where people have not brought in good counsel. We've actually just dealt with it today. Um, and we're sitting there ready for a deal and they're going to end up paying a couple million more in taxes than they would have had they spent a little bit extra time and money at the beginning. Ouch. Ouch. Big ouch. So, um, you know, for an entrepreneur who's assessing a CPA, what, what do they need to look for? 
It's a great question. So I think one, there, there's a lot of different kinds of CPA firms out there, just like there are in a lot of other industries. Yeah. You want to find a CPA firm that, that works in the space that you're in. So the, the CPA that you might have been using for your personal taxes over the years, uh, that might be the great person for it. Um, but it also may not be, they may not, they may specialize in personal tax returns, um, but not working with uh, fast growth businesses. Uh, businesses that are raising institutional capital, working with startups and the issues that, that are there, um, how to deal with complex debt and equity. And so I think the key is to ask some really good questions of your of the CPA firms. And, and more importantly, I think, especially if you're going through an accelerator program or, or you have a really strong network of other entrepreneurs, ask them who they use, mm -hmm. and what they're happy about. And um, I think you're going to find the right person. Also, yeah. if you're working with a, a really good entrepreneurial law firm, um, I think they'll, they'll have some great recommendations as well. Right, right, right. Okay. So, uh, before the deal, um, now let's talk about during the deal, um, sure. transaction planning, deal structuring, all that, like what, what should entrepreneurs be thinking about as they enter into a, a, a due diligence process with a buyer? Sure. And, and let me back it up because we're talking about during the deal. Let me back it up to before the deal, because I think there's, a couple major sure. items that need to hit get hit okay, cool. Great. as you're walking through the process of maybe a year or two out from the deal itself. Um, and there's really kind of three key areas and there's a lot more than that, 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 but that I like to focus on with companies that are saying, Hey, you know, within the next couple of years, I think we want to uh, try for an exit. I, the first thing we talk about is, you know, how does your, how do your financials look? Who's, who's preparing those? Do you have, um, you know, the typical local bookkeeper who's working part time and, they're getting all the numbers into the books, but they don't really look like a proper set of books that a, that a buyer would be used to seeing. Um, and so I think, I think for companies that are, that are really trying to grow fast and exit, I think it's really important that you build a relationship with an outsourced CFO firm. There's a lot of great ones, especially in the Colorado market here, Austin, New York. Um, and if you build a good relationship with them, you can bring on a full back office accounting team um, that really brings a lot of experience to the table and brings professionalism to those financial statements. Uh, and I think for, depending on the size of your exit, that may be enough uh, to go to market with. Um, as the exit price gets larger, there's, there's additional things that you should be doing pre-transaction to make sure that you're fully ready for the best purchase price. Um, and one would be uh, looking at uh, financial assurance. And so, one thing a CPA firm can do for you is provide audited or reviewed financials. And there's mm -hmm. reasons why you might want either one, but I think it's important to engage your advisor team and find out whether or not the potential acquirers would have an expectation that you have audited or reviewed financial statements before you go out to market. If you find that after the fact, when you're starting to get LOIs, it's, it's too late at that point. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Cool. Um, and then the third item is tax. I think you really need to be understanding what your tax situation is before you go to the market because it's going to inform the kind of deals that you want to look at. So if you're an LLC and you're going to be doing an asset transaction effectively, um, what's the tax effect on that? How does that affect your assets and liabilities? Mm -hmm. um, and what's the tax associated with a transaction? If, if you're going out to the market and you're a C corporation, um, if you're going to do an equity sale, which is probably where you're going to try to end up, uh, how does that look after tax? And, and just try to compare, you know, after tax equity sale, after tax asset sale and work the numbers and, 
if you can't get to the number you need to exit, maybe it's time to grow the company a little bit longer before, before you go. Interesting. Interesting. Cool. Anything else uh, before the deal? You know, I, there's a lot of stuff before the deal, but I think those are, those are the high points. Um, I think as you're going out and, and starting to look for uh, buyers, um, you know, you're, you're going to start getting LOIs um, and, and you may or may not have engaged a investment banker. And I think there's, there's points in time, you know, you can get unsolicited offers. Um, you can go through a full process with an investment banker. Um, I think a lot of investment bank bankers can bring a significant amount of additional value to the table. Uh, but for certain companies, you're, you're getting very high offers without even engaging one. So um, I think that's a good conversation to have again with your advisory team um, before you go out. But once you start getting the LOIs, I think one of the big mistakes that founders make uh, or companies make is uh, they don't, they think those LOIs are something that they should deal with before they talk to their team about them. So they end up signing an LOI before they go out and talk to their, their accounting firm um, yeah. or the law firm sometimes for that matter. Yeah. Uh, and that's a huge problem because once you've signed an LOI, in my opinion, you've really lost your leverage. Um, yeah. And so it's, it's key to make sure that uh, the points in the LOI are being negotiated. Um, if there's, if there's problems with uh, the internal financial statements and the way the LOIs are looking at those, we want to try to deal with those before signing it. Um, mm -hmm. A good example is revenue recognition. So mm -hmm. some smaller companies will recognize revenue based on when they receive the cash. Right. Um, but depending on how your company operates, you might be getting prepayments for services that might happen for the next year or two. And from a financial accounting standpoint, it's not revenue until it's earned. And so it's, it's really key to make sure that you understand the, the points that are in the LOI and how that affects the purchase value. Um, if, if they're saying we're going to pay you X on revenue and your revenue is misstated by 50%, you're going to be really surprised as diligence starts at, at the adjustments coming through as a result. Right. Okay. Okay. Um, anything else? Absolutely. I think, uh, you know, one of the things that's become more popular as of late um, through some investment banking firms, uh, and, and sometimes you can just engage your CPA firm to do this, is what we call pre-transaction due diligence. And so you can hire a CPA firm to come in, uh, or, or a diligence firm for that matter, and, and start to do a, a diligence checklist on, on your company as it stands. And mm -hmm. so you start taking a look at what, what would a buyer be looking at uh, and, and do that test yourself and see where the holes are. And then you got the opportunity to fix those holes before the buyer's coming and fixing those holes for you. That is a great, great suggestion. Uh, there's nothing uh, worse than being surprised uh, when you're in a transaction. And it, you know, like you said, you have the most leverage as, an, as a seller uh, during the LOI process. Once you get into due diligence, I mean, it's like anything you find little chinks in the armor, it's all the more reason to start renegotiating. So uh, to come in prepared and have everything tight and tidies. Very that, that's right. Well, there's an emotional aspect to this too. You know, it, you've been running your company for all these years, growing it, working long hours, emotionally invested in the business. And then as soon as you start to go into a sale process, people get really focused on what life looks like after sale. And so, mm -hmm. um, right. 
what you don't want to do is go out and pick your boat out <laughs> and then get a half, you know, a 50% reduction to the purchase price that you were thinking you're going to get. And then, you know, being flush the rest of your life turns into going out and getting a job shortly after you sell the company. Right. Right. Pretty disappointing. And so, um, you know, there, there's some costs that should be incurred up front and, and it's a hard bullet to bite. But at the end of the day, I think um, there is a lot of value in engaging your CPA firm and your law firm uh, in, in taking a look at what a buyer is going to look at so that you have confidence that when you provide financial statements to a potential buyer in a process that uh, whether they're uh, looking at paying you as a multiple of EBITDA or multiple of revenue or any other number in your financial statements that you have confidence that those numbers are at least materially accurate. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So anything else, uh, you know, during the deal that you'd want to highlight? Yeah, there is, you know, I think, I think that's where we really get into, uh, to tax planning. Um, and so, uh, and I'd say during exists when you know that you're going to enter the process. Right. right. Um, and so you want to make sure that you're engaging your CPA firm as an individual. And so that, that firm might be the same one that's doing your business. It might be a firm, that's different from the one that's doing the business. But as a, as a founder, I think it's really important that you engage your CPA firm in the conversation about what the potential exit looks like, what the structure of that deal might look like so that they can start running numbers for you and coming up with strategies for you to reduce the tax. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if you're, if you're a, a seller and you, you hold section 1202 qualified small business stock, um, it's entirely possible, depending on the size of your deal, that you may not pay any tax whatsoever. Um, on the other hand, if you don't hold that, there's going to be some significant tax implications. And when you get into negotiation, you're probably going to have a number in your head that's an acceptable sale price by the time it ends up in your pocket. And the more your CPA can help you um, structure that deal uh, to be tax efficient, you might have a little bit more room to move with a few different buyers. Okay. Okay. Um, are we ready to move on to after the deal? Absolutely. So what should we be thinking as on, about as entrepreneurs after the deal? So after the deal, uh, I think there's, you know, I think de depending on the size, um, you should really have, you should have already thought pre-deal during the deal, uh, about who your CPA firm is, who, uh, is advising you personally. Uh, you probably should have engaged a financial advisory firm. Um, a lot of founders don't have two pennies to rub together until the deal occurs. Uh, but post deal, you know, I've, I've got plenty of clients who are worth 20, 30, 40 million dollars post deal, and they were struggling to make mortgage payments uh, previous right. to that. And so um, you're in a very different situation. So you need to make sure that you've surrounded yourself with professionals who are used to dealing with that kind of wealth and they're advising you on how to uh, be effective with that. Right. I think it's also key to make sure that you fully understand um, how the deal was structured. A lot of deals come without, with earnout agreements um, and obligations to the buyer uh, as an employee. Um, and, and, and so you're, you're gonna need to pay attention to um, operating your business uh, continuously going forward in a successful way so that you can maximize the price that you, that you got. Right? Mm -hmm. Um, and you want, you don't want to just, uh, you know, throw your hat into the ring, uh, and be done with it, you know, post deal. You know, we talked about sort of how things change as an entrepreneur when you do have an exit. What are the, some of the things that you've seen that have tripped people up? 
you know, any do's and don'ts uh, that you would, you know, have people consider? Yeah, you know, one of the things I think that's key is um, don't, don't try to shift your lifestyle too much right off the bat. It's, it's a pretty big shock to the system for a lot of people. They're used to working a long, you know, long hours, uh, completely focusing on their own business um, and their team. And, and all of a sudden, that's no longer what's needed in most mm-hmm. transactions, not mm-hmm. always. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's a life-changing event. Um, right. And so, uh, making rash decisions, going out and buying a brand new car, um, you know, that might be okay depending on the size of the deal, but you know, don't go out and make major, uh, decisions right afterwards. Maybe take yourself on a nice vacation, take your family on a vacation, buy yourself something, uh, small and nice, but, but don't get, get used to it first. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Get comfortable in your own skin, uh, before you decide, uh, that you're going to make some, some large decisions. I've had uh, some clients go out, you know, on a, on a $10 million deal, which certainly is a, is a very large deal. But, uh, shortly after the deal, they go out and buy a couple million dollar house, uh, go and get, you know, a couple nice sports cars, take some excessive vacations, maybe buy a house up in the mountains. And all of a sudden what seemed like a really good life changing event is mostly spent after tax. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and that creates a lot of stress, uh, in their family. Um, mm-hmm. I've seen a lot of divorces happen after transactions happen uh, yeah. because the the relationship with their family changes. And wow. so I think it's really key, not just to focus on the financial piece, but really get in your own head and try to figure out uh, what what's life going to look like and for you and your family going forward. Yeah, and I think it's all about consulting with the people who've been there and done that, whether it's other entrepreneurs and always having a good advisory group around you and people you can tap into, but also the professionals who can say, look, you know, it was a $10 million deal and it's not the time to buy a $4 million house, right? You know, That's right. That's you know, right. You know, people can help you uh, live your best life who have seen others done and do it before. So um, definitely important to surround yourself with experienced professionals who are going to help you do that. That's right. You know, another, another thing that I see a lot of times, especially with tech entrepreneurs is they've got a little black book somewhere of other cool ideas mm-hmm. uh, or other things that they've tinkered with. And I think that's one area that you need to be really careful with because if some of those ideas have been developed as a component of the business that you were running, it's entirely possible that the acquirer um, effectively bought those ideas. Mm-hmm. And, and I've seen this happen many, many times where, the entrepreneur is now finished with their company and they're not following on with the new company. And so they decide, Hey, I'm going to start another business. And I had this really cool thing I was working on and I'm just going to go full gas on that. Yeah. And then they get themselves wrapped up in a whole bunch of lawsuits shortly after. Right. Uh, And that, that, that also extends to, you know, if you do legitimately have a business that's completely outside of what the buyer has, you got to be really careful about what your obligations are to the buyer as far as uh, employees that they brought on and, and, and having conversations with those, those teams are very, very tight in early stage companies and growth stage companies. And so a lot of times those employees would love to go with the founder that they worked with and start a new business. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that's a way to make life really painful for yourself. Uh, if you get into a battle with a large company, uh, that's a legal battle. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, this has been great, uh, Matt. I really appreciate it. Um, you know, is there anything else you want to share with the listeners about uh, the subject of exits? Yeah, I, I think 
I've said it a couple of times that I think the key to to these types of transactions and, and really running a business in general is just surrounding yourself with a really high quality uh, team, whether that's uh, the attorneys, investment bankers, other entrepreneurs, a good accounting firm, um, all of the uh, great board of directors, um, all of those things are gonna help inform good decision-making throughout the process, whether it's pre, during, or post-transaction. Um, and I think that team being tight and being high quality is gonna solve the vast majority of, issue, of issues and, and really bring a lot of, uh, take away a lot of blind spots for you. Mm -hmm. You don't have to know everything, that team will. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Cool, this has been great. I really appreciate it, Matt. What, how, do, how, could, how could people connect with Kurt Spargo? How do they find, find you? Is it you know, through the website, a phone number? What, what's the best way to reach you guys? Sure, um, you, should, you can certainly go to our website. Um, there's ways to contact us on there. That's uh, kurtzfargo.com. Um, we're pretty well known in, in the entrepreneurial community here, so it wouldn't be hard to find my address through uh, you know, a, a lawyer or investment bank or anybody else you might be working with in the, in the front range market. Um, and you can always call us on our phone here at the office, 720-310-2078. Awesome. Matt, thank you again uh, for joining us on the Canopy Boulder podcast. Um, you know, we look forward to working with you long in the future and uh, hopefully through a lot of pre, during, and post deal work. I feel like we've got a long road ahead of us. It's going to be a lot of fun. So thanks again. It's going to be a fun trip. All right. Back to awesome. Thank you. Now for the disclaimers, uh, please do not take any information from the Canopy Boulder podcast or its guests as investment advice. Be sure to contact your licensed financial advisor before making any investment decisions. So thank you for listening and please join us for another Canopy Boulder podcast episode coming to you soon.